once again, as a nation, we've exceeded the debt limit that was set by Congress. So that means that a, a month of debate over it looms ahead of us. How important is the debt limit? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So there's an ongoing debate whenever the United States hits its statutory limit for how much money it can borrow, whether we should just eliminate the debt limit. Why not? It's already been allocated. The money's been been authorized to be spent. So why do you need an additional process by which that you actually say we can now borrow the money to fulfill the spending we already promised to, to spend? So why should the debt limit require a second step? I mean, at one level, it's quite simple. Um, you know, we're a country that's governed by a constitution. That's how the government is organized. And the constitution says that the government can't spend money unless Congress appropriates it, saying here's the money that you can spend on this item. It says that Congress has to authorize coining money, not printing money, which is a different episode, but <laughs> they're authorizing, you know, coining money uh, for the Treasury, and they're the ones who authorize borrowing money. And the way that Congress has decided to do it is to say that those are going to be separate bills. And so they're going to say, here's the bill for how much you can spend, and here's the bill for how much you can coin, and here's the bill for how much you can borrow. And you know, that's the way the Constitution is set up, to give them that power. Uh, and so to say that you know the president can just ignore this, like some people have been talking about, is just saying he can break the law and ignore the Constitution. And you know, it's just the way that they've decided to exercise their authority. And I think we'll probably talk about later as to why that there's some good reasons behind why they would want to do it that way. But it's the same as if you know your kid, you give him, you know, this example isn't a complete parallel, but if you give your kid, you know, ten dollars and you say you could spend five dollars on candy, you could spend five dollars on, you know, a t-shirt, you can buy five dollars on this, that and the other but yet he's like well you've told me i can spend more than ten dollars where's the extra money well you know they the parent can choose to limit the child spending in that way by saying you can spend up to this amount but the total has to be this and you know that's just the way they've chosen to do it i mean one of the things you're just you're saying just point blank is there's nothing preventing if congress wanted to when they appropriated the money they could have authorized the extension of the debt limit they could authorize borrowing money to cover those expenditures there's nothing stopping Congress from doing it. They chose. They literally chose to do it the way they did it. Well, they are following a law they passed some decades ago. I don't remember exactly when it was passed. So, so that became the pattern is that you didn't put in those bills. They even passed a law saying this is how you have to do it, that you have to have a statutory limit and that you increase the limit. But, I mean, they could change that if they wanted to. I right. Mean, it's, it's purely within the power of Congress. I mean, right. Uh, Something that was decided by a previous Congress, uh, the current Congress can override. The argument at this level is just there's a law. This is the way we've done it for some time. Therefore, you know, don't move the ancient landmark. Is that the extent of – I feel like the question that we're asking is a deeper question than that. Is If that weren't there in place, is it still worth having this debate? Is it still worth having a debate over a debt limit? Right, and I mean even what – we were just saying is you could pass a law to eliminate it. And I would argue that that's a very bad law. And the, the reason I would argue that that's a very bad law not to have a debt limit is we just have to realize how bad debt is. And having a debt limit causes the conversation to happen in the United States, in the among the legislative branch, of how much do we care about debt? And the answer is not much. But at least 
whenever they go to increase the debt limit, they have the conversation. The rest of the time, they don't really have the conversation about how much debt we have. It's just, let's just borrow money, borrow money, borrow money. And then once, depending on how long they delay it, how long they they ignore it because of COVID and other things that they do these these huge expansions of the debt limit, in other times, it's it's a means to force the conversation back into the political realm. So it's not just off to the side. The reason why you're saying that this would be bad, the reason why you're saying we need to think about debt is because if you go and look at Scripture, Scripture is really clear about debt. Debt is a form of slavery. I mean, it's you. That scripture doesn't make like a halfway argument for this. Scripture is just really clear and upfront. You go to like Proverbs twenty-two seven: the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. You can you can talk about Proverbs being sort of general statements and things like that, but this is a pretty straightforward statement. This is a pretty this is pretty clear cut. If you owe someone money, and everybody knows this. Right. The second you borrow money from a friend, it puts a strain on your relationship because every time you see him, you're reminded about the fact that you have this obligation to him. You are his, you are his servant in a way. And I mean, you know, it's it's in that word servant. If it was more accurately translated, it would actually be slave. Right. We just tend to write it servant because most English translations feel better about rather than pushing slavery as heavy as it is pushed in the Bible. But right. but that's much more that the borrower is slave to the lender. That the, the the lender becomes their master that can tell them what to do and can really af- influence their decisions, right? I mean, you take a mortgage out on your home, and it changes how you think about work. It changes how you think about whether I'll change jobs. It really has a real impact on your thought process when you borrow money. Right, you know, there's other verses that talk about how, the, you know, the, the curse on Israel if um, they they will not – if they don't follow God, that they'll be the – borrowers rather than the lenders and you know so not only is it uh referred to as slavery it's also one in a list of many curses that are given on the nation that does not follow god and it's important to yeah in deuteronomy 28 where it says that you know if you obey my commandments you will be the lender to many nations and if you don't obey my commandments you'll be the borrower from many nations and so it's worth just considering how much money we borrow because it is pretty staggering Right, the U.S. federal government debt right now is thirty-one trillion, three hundred eighty-one billion dollars, and it's hard to even fathom that amount of money. Right, I mean, once you get up to those numbers, it just becomes beyond ways that you can understand. But to put it in compared to something else, the household debt, which includes all mortgages, all automobiles, in the United States, the household debt, including credit cards and all that stuff. Is sixteen trillion five hundred and ten billion, so and that's that's not a set of the federal government debt. Those are no. two separate Those sets are of two money. Separate sets. So, if you have a, paying a mortgage on the ha- on a house, just recognize on and a car on a house, just recognize on average you owe twice as much as what you owe on your house and on your car. You owe as part of your federal government share. Is how you should think about it that you're paying far more for the federal government in their borrowing of money than you are for your house and your car, like twice as much. Just to keep it in perspective, because people feel like the crushing weight of their mortgage, but they don't recognize that it's only half of what it is from the federal government. And that doesn't count states. A lot of the states can't borrow money like the federal government does, but some of them have debt too. Like you look at liability of like Illinois and some of those kind some of those states I mean like they're substantial like yeah that, right. like California they have substantial budget deficits where they have 
promises that they made that will require huge amounts of money that are unfunded. But to try to get that down to uh, on a per capita basis. So there's about 331 million people plus in the United States is what the estimate is right now, which means that every single man, woman, child, infant, every single person, if you average it out, they all owe $94,550. So in a family of, you know, some of our church, say a family of 10, just to make the math easy, that's almost a million dollars that they owe as their share of the federal government debt. And for a household debt, that would be, you know, about $50,000. So they're, almost everybody in this country, their average debt that they owe of anybody in this country is $144,294. That's a lot of money that we owe. And then if you go to the ones that, have to, that are going to pay it back, because there's a lot of those people that never work. Well, the ones that never work, they're not going to pay it back. So if you take the ratio per person that's employed in our society – that gives a debt, the federal government debt, to be $201,494. Personal debt, $106,009. And so that gives a total debt of $307,502 per working individual in the United States. This is not money that's ever going to be paid back. We just need to be realistic about it. That's just not going to be paid back, which means that you either have to print money in which case you're lying because you're not paying it back. You're just not paying it back while you pretend to pay it back. Or you simply at some point default on the debt and say, we're just not paying it back because this cannot be paid back. So Proverbs 22.7 says that the borrower is slave to the lender. Who holds this debt? I mean, where's this federal debt sitting right now? So a lot of the federal debt sits, the, probably the biggest pool of federal debt, sits in the Social Security program because the Social Security program has no money. They've loaned all the money, the excess money that they've collected from people to pay back through Social Security so that when you're paying it, when you're 50, that they can allegedly give it back to you when you're 70. All that money they collected into the Social Security fund, which is immediately loaned to the federal government. So all this money is the money that's supposed to pay for the elderly. And so one of the problems is is that as soon as you get a, a reverse, which is what's happening now, where you're going to have more elderly and a declining working class population, well, they, the Social Security Administration will need this money back and it doesn't exist. And so that's the biggest debtor. Federal Reserve is 11 percent. U.S. government, which I'm guessing is mostly Social Security, is 27 percent. And then I think of the privately held debt, something like 70% is held by U.S. citizens and 30% is foreign. At least that's what it used to be. Well, a little more foreign. I mean, U.S. investors, 32.5%. Foreign investors, 29.3%. I don't know if these numbers are right, but that's what Google says. (laughs) But anyway, so there you kind of see the breakdown is those are the four main parties that, that hold the debt. So somebody would and go. The, a lot of recognize this. the Federal Reserve. They're holding you know, 11%. 11%. So they hold $3 trillion that they got all of that just by printing money. They didn't, like, invest money right. to get that. That was just them stealing from the American people, basically, which is, uh, you know, that's another episode, the Fed. But the Fed, right, I mean, they didn't kick in $11 trillion, they ju- or 11%. Of the $31 trillion, they just printed it. I mean, that's stuff where they have inflated the currency, but they're saying, well, maybe we'll uninflate it if you pay the debt back. 
But anyway, so you see this 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 mess that we're in as a nation where we have this facade of being a very wealthy nation. Well, we're not really a wealthy nation. We owe huge amounts of money. And this is one of the curses that God says to a people that disobey him. This is what he does to them. And you look back and you look in before World War II, and even through most of World War II, we had almost no debt. We were the lender to many nations. And so this is really, in the last 80 years, we've completely accepted the curse of God of this is what you do, what God does to a people who refuse to obey so him. So you mean even up through the end of the Great Depression, you know, that yeah. terrible economic period, we did not have this amount of debt. Well, we've never had this amount of debt. I mean, even Fine. in the last, even the last four years, have, it's just been this. We didn't ex- have debt. explosion. We, we didn't, didn't have, have debt. a federal debt like there this. was some debt during World War II that mostly got paid back fairly quickly. So, if somebody's listened to this, what if they made the argument? Well, if this, if Social Security money is owed to people in the United States, really we owe this money to ourselves. So, is it really debt? And th- but there's a sure the pro- elderly will <laughs> when they go to get their social security check and they find out that it has zero on it they'll go but I paid in for fifty years or for forty years and so you have a big problem there a big political problem and then there's a bigger problem with social security I think that is even counted in these numbers which is that social security isn't financially viable because people are living longer than than when they started the program and so you know even if they were able to pay back the money social security quickly becomes a big liability over the next you know i don't remember the year but you know not very long it's going to suddenly become i think right now they're saying 2030 right so and then seven years so that's when not only do you need to pay back all the money to social security but you also need to start um pumping money into it because it's not it's not sustainable And the other thing is, I mean, this is one of the reasons that you have to – we talked about the sum with immigration is it's a tough problem that the Democrats are trying to solve one way and Republicans are trying to – To pretend to solve a different way. To pretend to solve it a different way, right? I mean, the Republicans talk about restructuring it so you pay Social Security later, other things, and the Democrats go, how dare you violate the promise? The way the Democrats are doing it is they're trying to expand the working population by getting more foreigners in. Because the American population at the rate that we're having children just simply is not producing enough workers to pay. Because you need, you know, a ratio of like four to one between workers and Social Security recipients. And we're not even close to that now. And, and the path of the demographics of it is significant decline. And so there's no way we can continue to pay Social Security. So you just print money, and then you inflate, and then you increase them. And so we're just in this situation where nobody has the courage to do anything, and no one has the political courage to actually stand up and go, this is destruction. But that's, that's what the judgment of God looks like, and we should just recognize this is all about the judgment of God. And, you know, in this uh, political climate, I think a lot of people would say, wow, you know, Biden has really messed up America. But you, you look at the graph and, you know, all the recent presidents have done this. You, 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 you can't see over the past, you know, 20 years where the Republicans were. As you look at the debt rising, you can't see it going down for Republicans. It's going up for Republicans. It's going up for Democrats. They're all adding to the problem more and more. And there's, you know, when President Biden's out there saying that he reduced the federal deficit last year by a trillion dollars, that's true because that's how much the – the Congress and President Trump expanded it during COVID. I mean, they expanded it just unbelievable so that the debt can be twice what it was in 2019, which is basically what he is. And he says, I've reduced it by a trillion dollars and be telling the truth. 
not the debt, the, the deficit, which right. is very different, right? The deficit is how the fast amount you're of adding increase. to the debt. The amount of ad- additional debt that we took on was a trillion dollars less than the previous year. And it's still twice as much as it was any year before, before 2019. But if the total debt, $1 trillion is like nothing. <laughs> it sounds like a big number, but. Well, when you have it year after year, it starts to add up. Right. But so he's going, I saved a trillion dollars, so we should spend another half trillion, right? Which is, you know, the whole, the whole omnibus bill and stuff is they just. We're heading towards the cliff. It's 65 miles an hour. We've backed off. We're only going 64 miles an hour. So we so should let's accelerate tap it to 68. <laughs> right. We should celebrate our slowing down by speeding up. <laughs> this debt is not going to go away in our lifetime. And so what we really are doing is selling our children into slavery for things we want now. And we should just recognize how sinful that is. We act like we love our children. We do not as a nation. We despise our children, which is obvious from abortion. We murder them. And by the way, if you didn't have abortion, we wouldn't really have this problem with Social Security. It's abortion that has created this problem because if you have, if you had that much increase in population, you wouldn't have the declining population. You wouldn't have the problem. So it's abortion and our love for murdering our children that has put us in this situation in terms of Social Security, not in terms of debt. That's just our – I mean, and, and we would have needed to love them after they were born and raise them up and train them to work and train – you know what I mean? It's, right. It's, but I mean, but in the end, we hated them enough to kill them because we didn't love them enough to raise them in the first place. And that's part of it. But even – I know a lot of people, they still – their they children are at home. They end up working. You know, there right. aren't that many people that at some point in time go – I'm hungry enough to work. Although now that I was reading an article today that they're talking about, I don't know, something like 17% of young working age men aren't working and have no intention to ever work. We've got our system just totally upside down. Do they do they plan on eating? I mean, yeah, because the government <laughs> right. Will feed as they say, I mean that's that's the problem, right? What we, they say is food stamps are good enough. We can just government, parents, and girlfriends. Yeah, <laughs> those are the three the three sources of revenue, not not labor. But I mean, you're talking about hating children, and 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 there's even just the way the financial structure of Social Security is set up. We hate our children. I mean, Scripture says this. Second Corinthians twelve fourteen. Just you know, Paul talks mm-hmm. about Social Security and tells us why it's evil. Two thousand years ago. Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. I mean, elsewhere, Scripture talks about how a, a wise man lays up for his children, and, you know, a righteous man provides an inheritance for his children. And we have this completely backwards where where the government is coming in and they're imposing it so you're they're forcing it to happen but but the way the structure is set up is the young pay for the old the young pay now for the old and we're not talking about we're not talking about acts of mercy here we're not talking about taking care of parents in that kind of a sense that children are supposed to do you know children are supposed to honor their parents but Paul's saying you know in a in a financial sense that there's an order of things, and this is not it. And Paul's even here. He's 
he's not like making the argument about Social Security directly. He's just saying this is an obvious statement that everybody knows, right? Because he's actually talking about when I go to the Church of Corinth, I should expect to be a blessing to you. I shouldn't look, you know, I should be giving you a spiritual blessing as the context. And he's just going, but let me give you an example because this is something everybody understands. Parents are not supposed to uh, children are not supposed to lay up for their parents. The children, the parents are to lay up for their children. This is like so basic that I can use that to further my argument because everybody knows it. Most America, we've forgotten that something that's supposed to be that axiomatic. And it's really interesting because if you look at things like the you know the the green movement, the green movement's argument is, is we're destroying the future of our children. But you don't hear anybody making that argument for Social Security. You, you do some people, but not not not, not anywhere not, near not Congress. Congress. Right, right. So, not yes, anybody not many in that, That's not more. Many. That's more what I'm talking. I'm talking about the people who are in authority, who are up there leading in front of us, who are talking about spending money, who are saying let's spend this money. I mean, the truth is, is no matter what they do, the Earth is going to be here. No matter what they do. There is not going to be money to pay for these promises that they're making. And so they're lying. I mean, even their willingness to be honest about where you're actually stealing from is a lie. Right, because most of these green movements, they all know they all have the common thing, which is basically to impoverish the the economy. I mean, look at nation after nation after nation experiences this, that you do these green movements and you're just pouring a whole bunch of money. And it's not just this, but it's a whole bunch of different things that have no – short-term, long-term effects. They're all just these these popular things. They're ways to get power, and so you just throw money at it, and you sell our children into slavery, into unbelievable levels of slavery, slavery that there is not a chance that they could probably redeem themselves financially. It's just not, I mean, it's just such a high level of slavery. We're making, you know, there's the, the guy that goes before the king and owns talents, and then there's the guy who owns just, you know, a couple shekels or whatever it was. And we're making our children to be like the guy who owed talents, where they just owed these huge, unfathomable amounts of money. And we just think this is normal, and we should just continue to sell it for the next you know, glittery thing that we that's put in front of us by the politicians. It's important when I talk about not being able to repay to understand what that means. In Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one, it says, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. We just, again, all these things are signs of just how wicked and perverse a nation we are. It's easy to look at abortion, but we should recognize it permeates our culture far further than that. The fact that we borrow all this money knowing we can never repay it. We will never be able to repay it, and yet we borrow it. We are a very wicked nation. You mentioned earlier that one of the ways to solve the problem is just to print money. And Scripture talks about this. I mean, it's in Amos 8, 4 through 6. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat? I mean, and this is... This is this is talking about exactly the same thing. They weren't, they weren't being as clever as we are by hiding it. But it, I mean, by hiding it through the many levels that we're hiding it through. But in the end, it would be, it would, this would be literally like if you went to Walmart, you went and you got a pound of apples, you put it on the scale, and, instead of the, and the scale said it was two pounds, and it was really only a pound of apples, and they charge you two pounds for it. And so you're, you're But the government would arrest you if 
you did it. <laughs> right. But they don't arrest themselves when they do it. Right. I mean, this. I mean, and this is exactly what it's talking about. Is instead of having a basket that's a bushel basket, you make a bushel back the basket a little bit smaller, and you let the people put the apples in it. You go, that's a bushel basket, and then they they pay for a bushel, but they don't get a bushel, and you take it home every time they print money. Every time they do this, it's like a stock split, but you don't distribute the new stock. You keep some of it, and you do with it what you want to. And this is, I mean, this is not something new. And when they sit around and talk about all their theories and all the things that they've done with it, it's just another way. And look at the beginning of the verse. You who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. And you're acting like this is good for the poor. And they act like this is the best thing to do. This is, this is solid financial policy that will help everyone and that will lift people out of poverty. No, they hate the needy. They're swallowing them up and they will make the poor fail. And, you know, it says there that, you know, that we might buy the poor for silver. We just talked about the whatever 17% of young men or whatever. That's literally what they're doing. They're buying them to have control over them, to have all the financial control over them, which gives them political control over them. I mean, they, they do it in so many ways, and this is just hatred towards the poor. And we should just recognize this is what our government is doing. They truly despise the poor. And that should cause us to fear. Because God cares for the poor. And let's be specific how these young, I mean, these young men who they've bought, if, like you said, there's government parents and girlfriends, one of those things that they depend on is that government, they're going to depend on that government check. And so the government owns that person. They own them because that person knows, what, if you're 35, 40 years old and this is the way you've lived, what are you going to do? Go out and learn a, I mean, You've made well, your decision. Be saved and then go learn a Right, but, I mean, but, but I'm saying if you're an unsaved person and you're looking at this and this is the decision you've made, what are you going to do? All of a sudden stop taking that money and go and, fi- and start your life right there? They're, they're, they're looking at it and they're going, I've chosen. I've cast my lot. I've done my decision. This is my life. And if the government all of a sudden says, well, you know, if this happens, this is what we're going to have to do, what are you going to do? They own you. They own you, and you know they own you, and you'll make whatever decision you need to make to make sure you keep getting from them what you've been getting. And, I mean, I don't agree with George W. Bush in many things, but one thing that he said is that the worst racism in the United States is the racism of low expectations. And if you look at where the poor are bought, it is, there is racial patterns in that there are cultures and societies, subcultures in the United States where this has become acceptable and then the next generation becomes more acceptable and the next generation becomes more acceptable. And this is truly how America hates the, the African-Americans because what they do is they buy them for silver. And then we say how much we hate slavery. And it's just not true. We are fulfilling this verse. This is exactly what we do as a nation. So what does all this have to do about the debt ceiling? I was going to do that. <laughs> nice. So because of the way that our politics work, everybody's just looking at piecemeal spending all the time. And so the problem is when you're dealing with piecemeal spending, the people that are talking about it are, you know, if you have two people and one is, you know, let's say a farmer that wants a handout and the other person is somebody who's going, we should save money and not give the farmer the handout. Who's going to actually go and talk to the representative? Not the guy who's saying, don't give a handout, but the guy who's saying, give a handout. And I just chose farmers. It could be anything. It doesn't matter what it is. So all they hear about on any given issue is the people who that is their most important issue. And the person who's saying, don't do it, that's usually not their most important issue, 
right? right. I mean, it's just in the mix, and they're not going to, like, push the congressman. So whenever you're doing an agricultural bill, whenever you do the military bill, you're getting everybody from all these lobbyists that come in and say, you need to do this. And everybody that is talking to you about that bill is somebody who wants you to increase spending. And so the problem is, is you look at defense and you spend more money. You look at agriculture and you spend more money. You look at welfare, you spend more money. It's, it's because everybody you hear from in any one of those niches is all pushing for more spending. What the debt ceiling does is give it so that there is a point in time where people who go, we need to worry about debt, actually have a place to speak. Because other than that, they just go, it's only another $10 billion instead of, well, wait a second, these $10 billion here and $10 billion there, soon you're talking about real money. You're what talking you're, about $31 trillion. What you're saying is, in a sense, the problem about the fight over the debt ceiling isn't that there's a fight over the debt ceiling. It's the problem is that that's the only time we ever fight over whether we should spend more money or not. Because the problem is, if you want to fight spending more money, if you're somebody like Rand Paul, who does do it all the time, you have to fight in every battle. So if you're a constituent that's trying to get your voice heard, you have to fight every single battle because they're always trying to spend more money. Let's just be clear. He said something good about a politician. Two politicians. <laughs> I said something good about George W. Bush, yeah. too. Well, I mean, that, that's a, an active politician who's actually elected right now in an office. <laughs> Rand Paul, what he said about him, he said something nice about him. Just, well, just <laughs> Joshua's right. The fact that I said something about George W. Bush that was nice Pretty, is even better. If you're playing Conquering Truth Bingo at home, <laughs> check your boxes. And so, so what happens, though, is the way we've created this political system is that, that – it's it's structured in such a way that all the pressure is in the wrong places in terms of there's not a general pressure to obey the Constitution because people do stuff unconstitutional constantly. There's not a pressure to save money because the people who are talking you about any given thing, they're the ones that want to spend more money. And so at least the debt ceiling gives people a place to go, wait a second, you're spending my children's inheritance. And I think the Republicans in particular really feel pressure for that. And so, you know, it's, it's, it is a useful thing. And, hey, it's a useful thing to write to your congressman and go, you need to stop. You know, you're stealing from our children. This is really unethical. I mean, and what, what you're saying is, is the person who, like you were talking about where the farmer, you know, the farmer wants the money and the other person doesn't want him to give the money. But that's not his number one issue. It actually needs to become a number one issue for a lot of people. And, and if not the number one issue, it needs to become in the top three. But, I mean, literally – it should become a number one issue for some people. It should become a number one issue because there's a part but of the it right where, way is for it to become a number one issue in who you choose. Right. That's, That's what why I mean. the moral ethics of who you choose, instead of hearing them say, I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to do this for you, we should be looking for politicians that run on the platform. I'm going to stick to the constitutional constraints. I'm not just going to spend your children's money just because it's a good idea. A good idea. We all have good ideas at home where we'd go, oh, I'd like to do this. And you go, oh, but look at my bank account. I don't think I will. The federal government never says that. They always say, sure, that's a great idea. Let's go do it. I mean, when I look at voting for someone, if they're already in Congress, I, I look at how they voted. Do they ever vote against the bipartisan you know, spending bills? Because if they don't do that, then they're not someone who cares about the constitutional limits on government and they're not something that cares about the future, someone who cares about the future of the con- the financial future of the country for the reasons that we spent the first half of the ep- half of the episode talking about. And one little side note on the, the the debt limit, which I mean, I'm not saying it's not a useful tool, but it's kind of like um, 
if you have a sin in your life and you're negotiating with it, like, oh, I know this is wrong to do, but so I'll only do it for 10 minutes. I'll only do it on Wednesdays. I'll only do it once a day. Ultimately, it doesn't work. We wouldn't have 32 trillion, whatever the number is, dollars in debt if the debt limit solved the problem. You know, the spending, the debt has gotten radically worse every year. You know, they're just piling on the debt. And so it can be a useful tool, but the tool's not successful because they're just negotiating with their own desire to spend more money than so we have. So when, when you talk about that debt limit, is the, has the debate ever been about reducing the debt limit? Or is it always <laughs> not since they established the law about the debt limit? Now that it has in prior times been about reducing the debt, because back you know after the Great Depression, after World War II, people were going, "We need to reduce the debt. The debt's ridiculous." But Even since they passed the debt limit, <laughs> well, as a percentage of GDP, it was pretty high after World War right. II. But they worked to reduce it. But once they put this in place, but then it was already the the spending was spiraling out of control. It used to be the only time you borrowed was during war. <laughs> but then the Great Depression and FDR. We've had a lot of wars. War on poverty, war on terrorism. That's one of the reasons they use that language. Because if it's a war on poverty, then you have to spend money. Because wars are expensive and people understand wars are very expensive. We love going to war with things. Right. We love to go to war. We should go to war and with war. <laughs> and go to war with the deficit. <laughs> we could spend some real money there. Yeah. <laughs> But but one of the arguments that's made is, well, this money was allocated, and you know, Matthew 5.37 says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so they make the argument, well, the Congress is committed to spending this. But we all know how farcical that argument is. If you go, well, I'm going to buy a new car, and then you don't get enough money to pay for the new car, you don't go, I committed to buying a new car, so I'll just go have to go steal the money. So somebody who says, okay, I'm going to budget this much money to go out to eat, when they get sick and they have to go to the doctor and spend it, they don't go, but I budget it to go out to eat, so I'm just going to go spend it to go out to eat. They go, I guess we're just not going to go out to eat this month. Instead, we went to the doctor. And this is just the reality of how every business works. It's how every individual works. It's only the federal government that pretends. We budgeted the money. That budget is fixed. That budget is firm. It cannot change. And even the federal government knows how it works. I mean, we have history DVDs that we occasionally sell, you know, to the national park gift stores. And so, you know, when there's a government shutdown, and then email goes out saying, if we have sent you a purchase order, do not ship the product. We cannot pay for it. We're not allowed to because the law is we can't do this. And so the, go- you know, the government contractors even know how this works, that you know, if it's the government. Ultimately, Congress is the one in control. And if they don't approve the money, the fact that the bureaucrat told you it's authorized doesn't actually mean that you're necessarily going to get it. And we've certainly experienced that with companies that they go, well, we decided we don't have money. You have a contract. Oh well, we don't have the money, and people only pay with what they, you know, have the money for. But yet, so to pretend like since something was authorized, that has created this binding agreement that forces you. No, all you do is go. We're deauthorizing this. That's really simple. It's trivial. Is trivial is raising the debt limit, which is very difficult. <laughs> I mean, another argument that's raised is that you know this allows a minority of of congressmen to hold the majority a hostage. So, so just unpack that a little bit. Having the debt limit allows a minority of congressmen to hold the majority of Congress, and by extension, all of America, 
hostage. Right. And so this argument especially would be made right now because Kevin McCarthy, to become Speaker of the House, what he had to agree with was with the 20 people that wouldn't vote for him to be Speaker of the House, what he had to agree with when they increase the debt limit that they have to do spending reduction. And that was part of his deal with their deal with McCarthy for him to become speaker. And then they go, look, they're holding him hostage. Just just 20 people are holding them hostage. That's just just a total lie. It requires a majority of Congress to pass anything, including becoming speaker. What it meant is Kevin McCarthy did not have a majority of the representatives is why he didn't become speaker. If they can't increase the debt limits, it's because they don't have a majority of the congressmen that will increase the debt limit. Now, a lot of that is because all the Republicans agreed that if 51% of the caucus doesn't say we're for this bill, that they won't bring the bill forward. So it's not 20, it's not five, it's not all these numbers that they say. The reality is it's at least 50% of the Republican caucus to stop it. And they all agreed that this was their procedure. So this is just to pretend like a minority is holding the country hostage. It's just total a lie. Especially <laughs> since they also added the rule that one person can bring a vote to remove the speaker. So there's no way a majority, because even if the speaker says no, one person can bring the vote to repl- get a new speaker who will raise the debt limit. Well, this is just true of anything. One Republican, just to be oh, okay, clear. One Republican. But this is true of anything that requires a majority. It would be like saying when a president loses a close election, the people who voted for the other person held the nation hostage by electing the other person. You know what I mean? There's this part of it where you need a majority to get somewhere. You have to have the majority to get there. And if you can't get the majority to do it, you can't do it. I mean, there's just – I mean, it's just – it's it's just a denial of, of what's required. But what they're also saying is, but if there were you know, 20 Republicans that would go along with the 100% of the Democrats, they would easily rate the de- raise the debt ceiling, which is true. But guess what? The Republicans agreed this isn't how we're going to operate. Right. So it doesn't really matter because right. <laughs> that's not how they're going to operate. And, and there's, you know, there's majorities that would – they can over – they can change any house. I mean I don't think they make can, – can make any permanent rules. You know, if there, you know, if the there was, rules are supposed to be in the Constitution. Right. So, you know, if there was, you know, a lo- huge if it was everyone but 20, they could get it done. If they if they said this is more important than, you know, any anything else, any other rule will just change the rules. They can do it. And, you know, with that whole speaker debate, I mean, one of the issues that came out was about the budget deficit. But another one was about the. Um, the budget bills, where they all of a sudden, instead of having the 11 different spending bills they're supposed to have, they just pile everything into one so that everybody gets their wish list, which is basically one of the ways that you have these huge increases in government. The $1.7 trillion that they passed in a lame duck Congress, I mean, that was one of the things that they said is everything has to be broken down, everything has to be specific, and so that you can't start to to – drive these 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 huge bills through where you go well our military is going to shut down unless we also increase the amount of spending on you know welfare by x number of dollars and all these other things and so part of this is goes back to the debt limit and all these other things is there there needs to be a real restructuring of congress in order to actually fix these problems because as long as you have these huge bills that are written by the speaker's office the problem will never be fixed and by restructuring of congress what you mean is is 
our representatives who we elect to go there and have these discussions and have these debates need to go and have these discussions and have these debates and actually talk about these things instead of a small group of people get together, huddle together, come up with the bill, and then tell them all to vote on it. I mean, the restructuring is just more, our representatives need to do what we sent them there to do. They need to stop pretending like they don't actually have a duty. And we need to, and we need to elect people. We need to send, the, like you're talking about, send people there who are willing to vote against spending. We need to send people who will go there. There needs to be more than 20 people who are willing to fight with the speaker over whether they're going to be debate on the floor or not. I mean, this every yeah, every representative, right? Because what happened under, especially under Speaker Pelosi, what happened is almost all bills were written by the Speaker's office. So they have all these committees, but the committees do nothing. The bills are written by the Speaker's office, and that's one of the things that they fought against. Because you can't get your spending under control unless you have people that are pushing the other side. Instead, they do one-way negotiations, which is what Pelosi did the last you know four years or whatever it is, which has just exploded the debt. And what we need to do is start to go, wait a second, you should have debate about these things so people can go, really, we need to spend money investigating you know, the, the long-toed frog that lives in Missouri or whatever it is, which is what they spend money on. Because if it's just written in the Speaker's house, they're just paying off people. When you have it in a committee, you actually have an adversarial relationship. You have to you know, have a, you know, a few people agree to pay off people. <laughs> right. <laughs> It doesn't eliminate the problem. Just like you said about the debt limit, it's just a tool to make it better. But until Americans don't want to sell their children into slavery, you will never solve the problem because that is the root of the problem is that we have no – we want to – it's the same reason why we have houses that we have mortgages on, cars we owe mortgages on, education that we owe mortgages on. We owe, 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 owe because we would rather get something now that we won't pay for later than to not have it because in the end the bible says that's because you're wicked because the wicked borrows and don't repay and we do this all over the place because you're covetous it's because you're right it's because right it's because you're a slave of covetousness i would definitely agree with that that's but that's part of wickedness right now one of the arguments that they make about raising is if you don't raise it the government's going to shut down if the government shuts down there'll be all these these loss of these permanent you know there'll be loss of services out there to people and this is actually one of the ways that where government actually if you want to talk about holding things hostage this is i mean when there is a government shutdown there is that is when the government tries to hold the American people hostage by because there's all these bills that keep essential services going and a lot of things that aren't essential they keep going but what almost all the agencies do is they immediately shut down providing services to you know they immediately like if they're supposed to have somebody at the front who's answering phones instead they put all their money to the people in the back who don't interface with the customer who don't interface with people and so it's really interesting whenever you do get down to this people act like this is a pointless exercise but the government actually tries to hold the american people hostage by making it seem like if you don't raise the debt ceiling it's going people are going to die this is say, like when they put like they have like a line of park rangers across the front of the Lincoln Memorial thing this is closed you may not come here right, exactly. normally there's like one guy there but since it's shut down they have a whole army of them one of my favorite shutdown stories was you know what a couple years ago um, when all of a sudden they sent agents to the, to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, to shut it down because the government was shutting down. And the people at Mount Vernon had to tell them, we're private. You understand? This is a private trust. This is not a government facility. We don't have to shut down because you're shutting down. Go away. No, we're shutting you down. And, I mean, one of the things that that 
the federal government, you know, you say it's the federal government doing it and there's no question that they do it to some extent, but it's mostly the media. Sure. The media goes, this is so horrible. This is so horrible. And the reality is you can't get a passport. You can't go into national parks. How many people would exchange <laughs> paying taxes for having those services disappear? You don't have to pay any taxes anymore. You just have those services disappear. And most people would go, we'd be fine with that. Because most of them aren't that essential. They aren't that necessary. But the media starts to, this is just horrible. It's just horrible. And most people don't actually notice when the federal government goes away. They notice far more if their local government went away. But we're a lot more concerned about the federal government than we are the local government. And there's no question the local government affects you more. I mean, if the local government went away and you had no police, you had no fire, you had no, you know, sewage, you know, and right. most cities supply sewage, they supply water, your local government goes away, you'll notice right away. The federal government wouldn't go away until, or you wouldn't really notice until like China invaded or something. I mean, it's like on a different scale, the difficulty, but it's not that noticeable. And all those things continue to be funded because they still have a huge amount of money pouring in on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis. And I mean, another argument that's made is that it's a pointless exercise because in the end, they're going to increase the debt limit. But if you look historically, that yes, in the end, they always increase the debt limit, which would be better just to decrease it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Fine, you could figure out ways. But instead, they're going to increase the debt limit in the end. But yet, that doesn't mean that, that they haven't negotiated some pretty serious things over time that have stopped the increase in growth not or reduced the increase in growth not actually fixed the problem and so just to say to not have the debate because in the end they're going to increase it's just not true i mean it really does drive the debate and it drives the the focus of the american people because if you look we haven't been talking about the deficit much we haven't been talking about the debt limit much for the last since 2020 because basically the Congress went, forget it, we'll just spend as much money as we want, borrow as much money as you want. And so there hasn't been much debate about it at all. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, they neither the Republicans or the Democrats wanted to have it before the 2020 election, so they just increased the debt limit. And they just increased – and nobody talks about reducing spending except the times where people come up and go, we have to increase the debt limit. And so it might end up, and I'm sure it will end up, that the debt limit will increase – but so what? It's still worth the fight. It's still worth raising the the profile of it in the American voter. So they go, wait a second, you are spending my children's, I mean, you're spending my great-great-great-grandchildren's money at this point because there's no way we'll pay it back faster. I mean, and while we're, I mean, we, we mentioned that some of this happened with the, the debate over the speaker. And it's probably just, you know, that, that some of these things happened in that fight as well. And so it's probably, I think it's worth mentioning while we're talking about this, just the side issue is, there are lots of fights like this in the world that are worthwhile. There are lots of – I mean, whether it's in your church, whether it's – there are places that you look at and you go, you know where the direction they're headed. But if there's a place to go in and have a debate, to have a discussion, to have a dialogue where you can stand, where you can speak, where you can speak truth, where you can say it, it's worth doing those things. It's worth – someone speaking changes the debate. Someone opposing something, it, it, it causes there to be it, – it, at a minimum, there are other people who realize, there are other people who care about the issue. The truth is said in front of others, which is something that God says is worthwhile. And so, I mean, it is something where we need to be thinking about that in the world, that it's, it's good to have these discussions. It's good to have these debates. You know, it's easy to get caught up in little – you know, in our – 
arguing with each other on Facebook. But the truth is, is there's a world out there that's that's headed to hell in a handbasket. And there are places where you can actually stop and say something to them on the way and push against it and say, why are you going this way? Why are you rushing headlong into destruction? And that's something that Christians should be doing. It's something that we should be having the mindset of how do we engage with the world. And even though that the only way this happens is because there's this little road bump on the way, the reality is I want to even ex- you know to put more emphasis on what you're saying in the sense that that you shouldn't have to wait for this little road bump. The reason that the congressmen need the debt limit increase is because that focuses their debate. They should really debate it about the agricultural bill, but they don't. But Christians should be. Right. We should be doing it. And like you said, not just about the federal government. We have representatives. We should consider it when we elect the representatives whether they'll follow the Constitution or not or whether they'll violate their oath and bring the judgment of God upon our country. Right. That's your choice. But in terms of your church, in terms of your family, and it's so easy for us to look at these things and ignore things that just keep getting worse and worse and worse unless you take steps. And there's never something that happens that goes, oh, now I need to act. We shouldn't require that now we need to act. We should go, this is wrong. Now's the time to act, not when there's some, some triggering mechanism. The government uses a triggering mechanism because they can help, but Christians shouldn't require one. We forget that the church, the ecclesia, the term for it is the called out ones, and that that term in Greek was frequently used for a legislative body. And so, I mean, there's this part of it where in your church in particular, but in the world, I mean, God says, you'll judge angels. Don't you understand? You have the authority to judge these things. You have the place to judge things. And there's a part of it where we don't have the authority after having judged it to go in and just stop things. But having made that judgment to speak, having made that judgment to be one of those called out ones to speak in the world. And I mean, that it's, it's not just something that we should do with like a passing interest or, oh, here's something I can do. It's something we actually have a duty to do. And it always plays out the same way, right? I mean, like whether it's the debt limit or the speaker, the majority of people go, how dare you do this? We just want things to run smooth. But that's not what God says. He wants things to be done righteously. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. That's what he commands. And so you don't just go, well, it's smoother to just let the person continue in sin. And I think that's that's the American pattern. That's that's our culture. But that shouldn't be the church culture. But I think it's largely the church culture as well. Instead, what we need to be saying is, you know, when you need to expose the hidden works of darkness, you need to actually deal with sin. You don't just let it keep getting worse and worse until the point where Every single person's a slave like we are in our country. People should have spoken out about this, you know, 70 years ago. I mean, the other thing that people talk about of, oh, you can't do this because if you have the debate, then it will destroy your financial rating for the country. Oh, we all supposed to laugh really hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did. It actually, they did reduce it, but who cares? Um, <laughs> you know, it's still like the safest investment in theory. But the other thing is, if we weren't borrowing money, who cares? Who cares what your credit rating is? Your credit rating only matters if you borrow money. If you're not borrowing money, it doesn't matter. So maybe it would be great if the, if the U.S. government's credit rating just got destroyed because then we'd be forced to stop borrowing money. What the problem is is we have a good credit rating. It's like the person who can't stop spending money. Uh, Donald Trump would be a good example. Bankruptcy, 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 and the banks keep handing him more and more money. That's what our federal government looks like. It is not a healthy situation. 
when you can't pay back your debts, people should foreclose. It would be good if people foreclosed on the United States because, yeah, we wouldn't be able to borrow money anymore, and that would solve the problem because then we'd have to start paying things back. I mean, if so you're if, saying that Trump was a good president because his personal finances matched the finances <laughs> of the country. No, I'm saying that, the, that his personal finances were <laughs> terrible and the government's finances under him were equally bad. <laughs> but what should happen is that there's, you know, it would be good if people would stop loaning us money. That would be a blessing to this country. That, that would be a blessing to the next generation in particular. Let's be honest. An agency that says, hey, if you keep talking about not borrowing more money, I'm going to have to lower your credit rating. <laughs> I mean, you're, you keep saying you shouldn't keep borrowing more money. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with you, man. I'm going to – I don't know if I'm going to keep giving you – I mean, you know what I mean? It's like it's Actually, a, it's if, interesting because, I mean, you know, you go on the credit rating thing and I go on the credit rating thing and they say the only way for me to increase my credit rating – and I don't really care. It's just kind of out of curiosity – is to borrow money. Right. Because unless I borrow money, that's that's the biggest ding on my credit rating is I don't borrow right. any that's money. That's what I mean. It's, it's, like, like, it's so funny. They're looking at you going – if you don't keep borrowing money, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say that you're not as great of a borrower as I thought you were. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like the Who most cares? it's the most hilarious argument. So the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, wrote to the Speaker of the House saying, "Oh, our credit rating is going to be destroyed and all these other things just today." So you know this is going to be what all the media picks up. This is what everybody talks about. And the answer is, let's just fix our financial house, and it won't be a problem. It's not the debt limit that's the problem. It's that we can't, you know, we shouldn't insult drunken sailors by saying we spend like drunken sailors. It's just not true. There's no drunken sailor that has spent $31 trillion. So we've talked about how much damage the federal government is doing by all the money that it borrows. But obviously, with most of these things, we should start at home. How much do we borrow? How much are we selling our children's future into the debt that we accumulate? As we, as we think, there's a reason why the government does it, and it is because it is the nature of Americans. So Christians should start out by doing something different. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Thanks for joining us. Is it spending like a drunken sailor? <laughs> I don't remember that particular analogy. <laughs> yeah, there is one. Is there, I always heard curses like a drunken no, sailor. No, 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 spending like a drunken sailor. Okay. You, you probably can't. I just, I'm, no, just it's, I'm it's, more familiar with the cursing one. Oh, I've never heard the cursing one before that I remember. <laughs> you swear, swears like a drunken sailor? Well, swearing is no, not cursing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, no, I don't. I don't think I've ever heard the swearing one. The idea is that never heard the swearing one. The spending I'm, one is the really. Common I've probably one. heard the spending one, but I'm just saying the one I've heard the most. I thought was. Swearing. I've never heard the other one. I don't think that it never rang it's because they swear all the podcasting time. Podcasting right here, but what they but it's. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, How many drunken sailors do you hang around with, Charles? No, They're constantly spending. No, no. My point is, is that they don't. That sailors swear whether they drink or not. That doesn't increase their swearing. But when they get their, <laughs> but when they get their money and they go into the port, that's why the saying is to spend like a drunken sailor. I, 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 I love this argument I, 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 I about a metaphorical drunken sailor. Because their drinking the doesn't change episode. their swearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, we're going to do no research. We sent a team of drunken. <laughs> Are you guys good and drunk? Well, they were swearing, but not more than normal. <laughs> guys in lab coats. You measured swearing well. rate has not increased at <laughs> all, but they're spending. <laughs> Mostly on alcohol. <laughs>
Not just alcohol. <laughs> Wine, woman, and song. <laughs> Charles. You're spending on song? <laughs> sure. It's fantastic. I want Happy this. birthday to me. <laughs> I don't care where it is. I want it. So are we done? <laughs> oh, We're done like a drunken sailor. <laughs> This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.